the Neon Confidential Podcast. Is this thing on? <laughs> Welcome back to the Neon Confidential Podcast. This episode is everything I hoped it would be and more. I had the absolute honor to sit down with our assistant sheriff of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, Sasha Larkin, who honestly, guys, looks like she could be Miss America, first of all. Sasha has served over 23 years in the police force, and it was so crazy talking to someone who knew exactly what she wanted to be from when she was in kindergarten and saw that path through despite being a woman in a totally male-dominated sector. She has paved the way not only for women in leadership roles in our community, but has also spearheaded some serious progress in the way Las Vegas fights crime as a whole. And the way that she explains things is so thorough and easy to digest for an industry like policing that after this conversation, I've realized is so misunderstood and the way that you only just see a cop in like that wool polyester blend uniform, more on wearing those in 120 degree heat in this episode. But these people are putting their lives on the line literally every day for the good and safety of our own lives and our communities. Sasha is a shining example of what a bad mama jamma is who has not been jaded by any means, but is actually so in tune and at peace with her line of work. Naturally, you know that she has seen some things on the streets and in the field, but moreover, just like the juxtaposition of these real-life stories she has while in the line of duty, mixed with her grounded and nurturing personality, made for such a good conversation. She's actually implemented yoga in the police force since she's been teaching it for decades as a form of processing and healing in their intense line of work. We talked about how the traumatic instances Sasha and other police officers go through on a daily basis have paved the way for how the department now polices. We talk about her work in vice, human trafficking, and community engagement. Her stories are so enlightening for the way she and women have influenced police work. And of course, y'all know I asked her about the recent alien sighting heard around the world that happened here in Las Vegas a few weeks ago. She's strong, she's gentle, she's educated but humble, she's fierce and compassionate. Please welcome Assistant Sheriff Sasha Larkin to the Neon Confidential Podcast. Okay, guys, we have Sasha Larkin. She's the Assistant Sheriff of Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. That is quite the mouthful. Uh, That's your title, right? Yes, the Assistant Sheriff of Homeland Security and Investigative Services. That is amazing. So let's start off with a question I love just to put into the spotlight for women in leadership roles in male-dominated industries. Um, What is it like being a woman in law enforcement? We are so blessed. What an amazing time to be in policing. My mentor, when I came through, would tell me about what police work was like 30 years ago, 40 years ago. You know, it's not that long ago that you had to be three things to be a police officer. You had to be male, Mm -hmm. you had to be over six foot, and you had to be white. And so I wouldn't have qualified in any three of those categories. Right. And so now here we are, 2023, and we it's not just me. We have three female assistant sheriffs on our police department. That's incredible. It is. And it really shows the progression of people maximizing strengths in leaders. And I always like to tell people, I don't believe I ever, and I I pray it's true that I never got promoted because I was a woman or in spite of my sex. I always have worked hard to make sure that when I got promoted, it was based on merit 
and competency and skill and passion. That's amazing. And so tell us, what does a day in your life look like? <laughs> so I'm an early riser. I get up around 4.30 every day and go to the gym. Mm -hmm. And if I don't, then I, I won't get it done. Right. Like you get the hard way, the hard stuff out of the way yes. first at the beginning of the day. I love doing that. I just did that this morning. I've never been a like morning workout person, but I, it's because I always told myself that, oh, you know, like yes. I, I thought, well, when I was in cheerleading practice, our practice was at like from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. So I felt like my body was just wired that way. But you can rewire yes. your body. And it's so beneficial, like, you know, we said, just to get that out of the way in the morning. And then the rest of your day, you feel like you can just accomplish anything. Agreed, you know. And plus, I think it sets the stage, right? It sets your mind up for success. And for me, it's, I always tell people that <clears throat> after years of compounded trauma, instead of Prozac or any sort of other mood altering drug, I had my running shoes and my yoga mat. That's right. Right. And it just, I was able to, one thing I learned after 25 years of yoga is if you don't assimilate, digest, and get rid of, right? That's the point of digestion, right? To take what you need and get rid of that which you don't. Mm -hmm. If you don't digest all of the things you see, hear, feel, and do, it stores and imprints in your body somewhere. And I didn't know that about you until I was reading your bio. You've been teaching yoga for yeah. 25 years. Yes. Is that right? It's true. Do you incorporate that practice at all in like the police department? Like do people like want to learn from you in that regard as well? So many years ago, 2005, I became a training and counseling officer, which is short for being an attack officer at the police academy. So I get to put all the new young recruits through training, which I can't believe they paid me to do that job. They paid us to work out, yell at people, and tell our war stories. Greatest job ever. Fun. <laughs> and when I was there, we started a yoga program. And the, any of the kids I put through the academy, even today, they're like, oh, we remember when you would make us find our boat, and we'd sit in boat pose and stretch. And But I'll tell you what, injuries went down. Their ability to cope with stress was improved. And it really gave them an understanding of how to take that breath before they reacted or even take a breath before they pull the trigger out on the range right That's I mean right. you know all about shooting exactly yeah and that is true like breathing has so much to do with shooting a hundred percent like you'll notice you know your trigger pull is like a little bit faster rather That's than like right. slow and steady slow which is like you know more of a just a, for the gun to rear back so that's right that's amazing that you incorporated that okay so back to your schedule so you wake up you work out we have workout, and then I have three little people that I have to get dressed and out the door, which honestly, that's the hardest part of the day. <laughs> because you just twin daughters, one of them wakes up upset for no reason. You know, the boy, he's just on his own program of what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. So by the time I get them out the door, I, I, I'm almost done for the day. <laughs> and I know how old your kids are, but tell everyone how old your kids are. So my twins just last week turned 10 twin girls. And my boy is 12, about to turn 13. They're all so cute. And and I don't know the answer to this. Do twins run in your family? They do. They do. They do. I had such an, actually an interesting story that um, parlays into why I do what I do today is I had twin boy cousins, mm -hmm. um, and they lived in um, the East Coast in Long Island. When I was a little girl, they had graduated medical school, and they went uh, on a graduation trip. And when they were coming back, they were in the flight over Lockerbie. That was the Pan Am flight that was bombed 
Oh my God. And I remember as a little girl, my mom was in tears and was, was rattling on and on about Islamic terrorism and this and this and that. And I really didn't understand right. back then. And then years later, you know, 9-11 happens and my mom again was starting in on, you see, these are the, this is how your cousin's lives were taken and so on and so forth. And it really gave me that passion and that drive to get involved in Homeland Security. And I remember that being such a, a reason for this journey for me. And so that's how you started off first was in Homeland Security. No, it's where I have ended up. Okay, got it. So back to your schedule, you get the kids. Get them out to school and then after work I go and I, we work we work for 10s or 12s or 14s or whatever. We work four days oh a week, God. essentially. But for us at this rank, right, we don't ever really turn it off. We're attached to our phones. And it's, you know, it's not bad. I Honestly, I kind of like the chaos. I don't know how I would function without it. Isn't that weird? I feel, and I there must be something to this for people in leadership roles, because I feel like if I'm not running late to something, that, like, my day isn't going. I like the chaos. Like, I kind of like to feel like I've got to be in eight places. Yes. You know what I mean? Same. <laughs> How long has your career been in law enforcement and what was it like getting to your role right now? Mm. I'm about to hit 25 years. Congratulations. That's Thanks. incredible. It's crazy. Because you look like you're 25 also. <laughs> well, I started police work when I was six. So, you know. <laughs> What? <laughs> Whenever people ask, I'm like, don't do the math of how old I actually am. Yeah, right. No, listen, it's been, I've had the career of a lifetime. I'm so lucky. I've gotten to do what I love. I've had great mentors and supporters along the way. And not to say it's been an easy journey. It has not. But it has been worth every struggle, every, you know, piece of blood, sweat, and tears that I devoted to it. And, and you know, I spent, I signed up as most people do, to wear a uniform and drive that police car. Mm -hmm. uh, I fell in love with Chips, the TV show in the 70s and 80s, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do, like that intrinsic thing inside of you that just, we call it in yoga, we call it your dharma. Mm -hmm. It means that purpose which God put you on this planet to fulfill. Right. For me, it was service. Wow. In the form of police work. I can't imagine. And, and what did your parents, did you say, like mm -hmm. when you're in school, people said, what do you want to do yes. when you're in like first grade? And you said, I want to be a, pl a police officer. Yes. And what did your parents say about that? Were they like, oh, she's just dreaming or? Uh, my mom, my mom was always very supportive of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't until I got to high school. And by the way, it never faltered. There was never anything else I wanted to do. Wow. Uh, when I got to high school, I went to high school in Albuquerque with uh Doogie Hauser, otherwise Neil Patrick Harris, mm -hmm. and wow. Freddie Prince Jr. Freddie and I were best friends growing up. We went to, we did karate together and martial arts together. We actually went to the senior prom together. Did you really? Fun fact. I we need to pull that picture up <laughs> and tag Tim. <laughs> he's a he's a super, just incredible human being, and he even was back then just kind and giving, and we had such a great friendship. But when he went off after high school to Hollywood, my mom was like, oh, you got to go with Freddie. And I remember I felt like I broke her heart because I said, Mom, that's just not my passion. I don't I don't want to be a movie star. So you've always been really in tune with your intuition. Yeah. I mean, that, I do feel like there's a lot of people that like it's hard to say that you have it in you. You just have to listen to the signs because that sounds so woo woo. But it really is true. Like when I was um, in college and I, you know, was going to school, I went to school for journalism. And well, I started that way until I found out what PR was. And my dad was like, you might as well get a degree in basket weaving. I knew I'm like, I don't really care if there's not a lot of money in this industry. 
for whatever reason, I know this is my path and this is what I want to do. And, you know, now my business is going to be 11 in September. Congratulations. So, that's amazing. But, right. But I feel like that's what happens when you listen to those things at a, from a young age and you have a good support system of people who encourage you to do that yes. because then you figure out what you want to be when you grow up from a very young age. And now you're in a position like this where, you know, you look like you're 25, but you've been doing it for 25 years. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> What's something about your job that people don't understand that you want to like shed light on? Well, as I was telling you, I, I signed up to wear that really lovely blend of wool and polyester. <laughs> I know. My God. They're awful. They really are. They should remake like police officer outfets, like superhero outfits. You know, we would do something so much cooler with them. if people were like showing up in squad cars and they get out and it's like a Wonder Woman outfit. But I think <laughs> the community would enjoy it. I'll tell you what happened. In 2004, 2003, 2004, uh, we had complained because literally our pants are made of wool. And, and look, they're great for protection, and that's why we have them, and they look nice. And four or five years in a row, we won Best Dressed Police Department. Oh, yay. So they'll never change, right? They were like, oh, we're not going to change it. And just for reference, it's 115 degrees today. outside yes. today. So and, anyway. then, and then add a lovely layer of Kevlar underneath that wool and polyester blend. And you guys earned it. You earned the Best Dressed. Oh, my gosh. It is. You <laughs> smell like, we always say because the dry, dry cleaning chemicals when they get sweaty and wet, you smell like a litter box. Ugh. It's gross. Oh my God. Anyway, I digress. So a couple <laughs> summers in 2003, 2004, they said, oh, well, let's create shorts. We're like, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll, be, we'll wear shorts in the summer. Mm -hmm. Well, they did not get a fashion consultant when they developed these shorts. And they were tapered. They were like um, BDU kind of uniform material. Mm -hmm. And then they tapered at the knee. Who does that? He tapers shorts at the knees. And then let's also address the fact that some people just shouldn't wear shorts that are, yep. you know, like in a uniform because you show up on a call and you're already struggling to fit in the shorts. Mm -hmm. And the, the community called us Reno 911. Uh, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. I'm like, yeah. do they let you wear cowboy boots oh, with the shorts? They, the community <laughs> laughed. Boo goofing. It was awful. <laughs> All summer they laughed at us. So it only lasted about five months and then they took them back. It was awful. When you say taper at the knee, do you mean it like, so then it looked like it ballooned or yes. something? Oh it my God. I don't know what happened there. Terrible. But we were also desperate to have some coolness in the summer that we just endured the constant heckling, <laughs> but it was terrible. So have the uniforms improved? Are they still wool? Yes. Oh my God. Wool polyester blend. However, our current sheriff has made efforts to improve the uniforms. So we're hoping that we keep moving on that path. Yeah. I hope that for you too. <laughs> but we'll see. Look, at the end of the day, though, that's why I signed up to wear that uniform and drive that police car. And I spent a lot of time in patrol. I worked many years on the street as a young cop, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And promotion happened for me somewhat on accident, but because I had great mentors who kind of nudged me along. I told you I spent a long time on the streets, and I had two officer-involved shootings in 2004, wow. which were very traumatic uh, you know, look, the taking of a human life is is very serious, mm -hmm. and nobody ever wakes up and wants to go through that. Right. And on April first, I had my first shooting, and it was it was very complicated for me to process. Uh, you know, I have. To and you're saying like the police officer was shot? No, we I shot somebody. Aha. Uh -huh. And that person died. Oh man. And you know, being a very spiritual yogi and spiritual practitioner, I really struggled. 
And my yoga teacher at the time, um, also my spiritual guide, I called and said, I'm really, I'm having a hard time. Like, I know I did the right thing. This person shot and killed somebody right right before I encountered him. He fired at us first. Right. Right. All of the things that you need to have um, for in order to use force. I had all of the elements in order to use deadly force. I understood clearly the sanctity of human life. And, you know, in a, in a, in a matter of seconds, you process all of that information. Right. Does this person have the ability and the opportunity to, to, to shoot and kill me? Yes. Am I, you know, preclusion, imminent jeopardy, meaning do I have any other choice? I couldn't retreat. I couldn't leave. There's other people. I pulled the trigger. Right. And then this person died while I was handcuffing him. Mm. And, you know, your soul, my soul really struggled with that. And my teacher said, listen, the, 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 the teachings tell us that when you are in service, acting in service, and you have to take somebody's life, that the divine God is understanding and supportive of that. And for me, that was what got me through that period. And then really praying and, and doing a practice to help that person's soul, that person's spirit, be able to go to a place where it could be at rest. And it's, you're so, you know, lucky that you've got those support systems for trauma, because I know that like, you know, a lot of police officers don't, you know, if I don't know if they, do, do you guys provide some sort of like therapy but it's, it's it's optional, right? Or do people they have to they have to go through it? Um, they have to, yeah. It's it back then, two thousand four. It wasn't very good. We used to see a psychologist once or twice, and I thought it was I got zero out of it. And I think I would have been much worse off if I hadn't have had the tools That's through right. a spiritual practice and through my physical outlet. But then I had a second shooting just shy of six months later. Uh, wow. Which was awful. Wow. And even more traumatic. And then I got back to work and I had a guy jump out the third floor window of an apartment complex and land on the hood of my car. Oh my God. Naked, because they're always naked. Oh. Filled with glass shards in his body. And as I'm trying to help him and, and hold him because he's high, he dies. He bleeds out on the hood of my car. And so they call that an in-custody death. And, you know... At some point, I remember I remember my captain came and said, I think you need to take a break from the streets. Yeah. But I didn't know anything else. And I really, I didn't want to leave, right? That was my family, that my squad, my friends. So all of those things happened in the course of like less than a year? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And before that, you, you'd never had like instances like that or... Nothing that traumatic. Right. And, you know, you just, you think, okay, um, what else can I do? And then... It was the best advice. He said, I want you to go test for the police academy. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to leave the streets, you know. And I really had this thing that I felt like I needed to prove myself. Because back then, it was really like, hey, you know, women have to work twice as hard. And I was okay with that. I was like, okay, watch me. I will outwork every one of you. Mm -hmm. And I was determined to spend time on the street and really earn my earn my stripes, earn my, earn my way. Because I wanted them to see, you know, I was brave. I was courageous. I could do this job because I wanted them to respect me. Right. Because I didn't really understand how else to go about that. So what's the difference, I guess, like being in the streets versus the police academy? What are those two sectors? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you're in the streets, like you're wearing the uniform, you're answering calls for service, you're making car stops, someone calls 911, you show up. Uh, being at the police academy, you're up training the new kids. You're you're teaching them the laws. You're teaching them defensive tactics. You're teaching them how to be a police officer, right? It's a six-month journey. And it was, it was amazing. I spent about two and a half years up there, two, two and a half years. 
And it was a great reset for me mentally, physically, emotionally. It helped me really kind of get myself together. Mm -hmm. And so I'm still trying to process like all those, the traumas that you, that you went through. So the guy that jumped out of, uh, of a building, did he, did, had you guys responded to a call? Yes. And so you, you know, you guys knew there was a situation. Yes. Did he, was he aiming for your car? No. So what happened is he, he was on the, the third floor window. He jumped through his window. And so when I got up to the third floor, he was bloody and covered in glass and he was um, non-responsive. I mean, he wouldn't help. He wouldn't answer my questions because he was so uh, out of his mind on some sort of controlled substance. And I was there by myself. I didn't have any backup units yet. They were all on another call. And then he started to go down the the balcony and he went from like the third floor to the second floor. And then from the second floor, he jumped down to the ground and my car was was right there and landed on my hood. And because he had pieces of glass in him and he was bleeding. Mm -hmm. And so when I was going to to put my hands on him, the people around that lived in the apartment, because now people are starting to come outside. Sure. Because I got my lights on and, you know, we're yelling and he's yelling. And they said, hey, he's got the hiv, he's got the hiv. And I didn't under, it didn't process, took a minute for me to process. And I went to touch him and this guy, he's like, hey, he's got the hiv. And I didn't. HIV. Yeah. And then, because there was so much commotion. And finally it dawned on me and I was like, oh, and you know, back then we didn't really wear, I mean, I wore gloves, but it wasn't something I did every single time. Right. And I recognized that that probably wasn't the smartest choice. It's just, you're out there and in the moment. So I stopped, put my gloves on and then the fire department came and they gave me a blanket and then I tried to cover him to, you know, help stop the bleeding because the fire department wouldn't come put their hands on him until he was made safe, meaning in handcuffs. Right. But I couldn't get him in handcuffs because he was fighting. And so wow. through all of this, you know, unfortunately, once my partners got there, we were waiting for the fire department to come. He 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 passed away, and it was really tragic. You know, my soul, again, is like, man, what did I what did I not do to save this guy's life? What could I have done better? How do I how do we help him? And that was a big turning point for me on how do we how do we get in front of these things instead of responding to them? Yeah, that's I think a lot of people don't realize how much police officers go through on a daily basis from a trauma standpoint too. Um, so I'm glad to hear that you gave yourself a break and kind of, you know, so through that too, because you were teaching other people how to respond to those situations. So it's like, you know, not that there's like a reason for, for something like that to happen, but I'm sure you were better able to explain to other people what to do in a situation like that. Like, you know, if you're, if you're teaching, right. I hope so. I hope that they got some little nuggets that one day will go on to save their life or, or help them. It's such a huge responsibility to teach somebody, I thought. Every day I went there, I felt like, oh, I don't want to miss anything, and I want to make sure and teach them each step and make sure they get it right. I, I just, I really felt like that was a huge privilege, but the responsibility, because what if you miss something? What if you don't tell them something? What if they don't have that tool when they're out on the street and it costs them their life? You know, and I, I thought about that every day, and it, it really sharpened my skills. To, to me, that's like a, a signal of a good leader, too, for somebody who you know, cares about something that passionately that you're making sure you got everything. It's not like you're following a textbook so you can see. It's like right. you're wanting to use your real life scenarios at the same time. I think it is. It's a big responsibility to carry a firearm. Um, and, you know, we can talk about this for, for a long time. And I think we probably have at some dinners, but it's really easy for people to get their concealed carry. So in fact, whenever I went to go get mine. I told my dad about it. This was, you know, 12 years ago. And he didn't want me to have a firearm in my house. He's like, 
it's very different, you know, and he, I grew up in Texas where we're going to like, you know, deer camps and there's blinds and I wouldn't stop talking. And my dad was like, you can't talk when you're in the deer blind. But anyway, he's like, you couldn't even pull the trigger at a deer, you know, of course, I'm like, Bambi, you know what I mean? And so he's like, it's a very different scenario when you're thinking about somebody, you know, a home intruder and you're like, oh, I'll just shoot his ass. But like when you're in that position and like you said, you have to process like, can I get out of this? Is this what I should be doing? Yes. There's no, there's no other option. Like processing that and that amount of time and then actually pulling a trigger and having that responsibility of ending someone's life. There's so much, um, there's so much around that. And I think that's kind of what my dad was explaining. Like, you, you know, and if you don't process that quickly enough, that somebody who knows what they're doing more than you could just come take the gun and kill you with your own weapon. Exactly. So it's like, there's so much stress in your position. So uh, this is very interesting for, for me to hear changing gears a little bit. Cause I feel like a lot of people that know you or talk about you talk about your, your work and community engagement. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm. You know, if you had asked me 25 years ago, how I envisioned my career, I don't, I never saw it going this direction. Because I signed up to drive that police car and because I was so ingrained in, you know, our culture back then was drive fast, catch the bad guy. And I use bad guy in air quotes, right? But catch the person we were trying to apprehend, put handcuffs on them, take them to jail, go back out, catch another bad guy. Mm -hmm. You know, that was our cycle. And and we really followed a, a, a way of thinking. It was called the broken windows theory. And the broken windows theory basically says that if you go into a neighborhood and you see that they don't pay attention to the little things, maybe there's graffiti, there's broken windows, right? It was it was during a time that Bill Bratton was the police commissioner in New York, and they had done a lot of work on reviving some of these neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And they found that if they addressed the little things, such as broken windows, that it improved the quality of the neighborhood, which improved the quality of how people acted, right? And it went to show improvement. A lot of the reasons, uh, like at private school or Catholic school, they make them wear uniforms because it sets a, a foundation for how people act. And so we in interpreted that and used that to say, we're going to arrest people for jaywalking. We'll arrest people for, you know, littering or whatever it is in, in these neighborhoods where we had high crime. Because if we arrested everyone for the little things, then they wouldn't be there to commit the big crimes. Hmm. So for a long time, that's how we policed. But the problem is, if you throw out a big net and you arrest everyone, you, you catch a lot of really good, hardworking people in that net. And what happens is you end up policing neighborhoods of color or low economic income differently because you are there is higher crime. Right. Right. And so what happens is you catch really good people in that net who are just trying to get by, who are just trying to support their families, who, yeah, maybe they jaywalk because they're trying to catch the bus to go to work. Right. Right. So what we had to do was pull back and understand that we can't keep policing this way because, number one, the community's not going to put up with it. Number two, it wasn't effective. We were not decreasing crime. We were not making a positive impact. And more importantly, most importantly, we were not giving the community or ourselves a sense of legitimacy, which means trust. Right. So we were failing on all fronts. Wow. And and what we figured out was uh, what my predecessors, my mentors figured out was that if we built trust with the community, we got them to see us as people and humans and we got them working with us. Then we had a way better chance at decreasing crime, preventing retaliation on shootings, 
right? So on and so forth. And that was the foundation that happened for me when I promoted to sergeant that got me onto this role. Wow. I mean, that's really involved. So you guys really have to take a look back at, you know, what you're doing and what's working, what's not working. Um, would you say that like Las Vegas Metro Police Department does that more stringently than other cities? Is there, you know, are there stats that you have that Unequivocally, that yes. Yeah. We are, I believe we lead the nation in a lot of areas when it comes to the work we do in the community. And, and let me tell you why. I don't say that just offhandedly. You know, in a post 9-11 world, right, 2007, when I was a sorry, I got promoted to sergeant and I went to work what we call the West Side. And it is, um, at that time, there was a, a square mile down there that was considered to be one of the most violent square miles in the state of Nevada, right? Really high homicide rates and, and, and robberies and killings. And, and we didn't police there in a very um, community-centered mindset. Until um, my my predecessors, who you know our current sheriff included, um, put together some programs. The first one of its kind was called Safe Village, and it's really where we partnered with the community to go out there and address these specific apartment complexes or specific neighborhoods, and start to bring in religious leaders and community leaders and get their input and get their guidance, and then do things, community events, follow up on shootings, different things with them. And what we found was it was wildly successful. So does that mean, for instance, if there was somebody who, you know, goes to a church that you guys would like partner with the church? Yes. And, wow. The church, the mosque, the synagogue, all of them. What we figured out was, you know, there's there's an innate trust that most people have with their religious leader. So if we could get the trust and develop a relationship with the religious leader, then it opened a door for us to then build trust with all of the people in that congregation. Right, because the people in that community already trust those people. They go to those places on their own will or their own their own accord. So that's that's really smart. Right. And it's been it's been a beautiful process, right? And for me to to step in once that foundation had been laid, you know, we were we were working in an area where um, there was generations of of uh, crime and and we really wanted to figure out how to break that cycle. And so in where I was working, there was two different mosques. There was a Nation of Islam mosque, and there was a Sunni mosque, uh, less than a mile away from each other. And I didn't really know anything about Islam other than what CNN and Fox News had told me after 9-11. And, you know, you know, shame on me, right? And, and that's the first rule of leadership, as far as I'm concerned, when I bring up these young kids coming behind me, is if you're going to lead a group in an area, right, you have, you're assigned to a specific geographical location, right? It is incumbent. It is your responsibility and your duty to learn, number one, who makes up your neighborhood? Who? Number two, don't assume you know what they need. Go ask them. And number three, you have to get your folks out there to start developing relationships with those people because you can't police them blindly. It seems so easy, but it's not. It's almost like counterintuitive when you're talking about a police force because it's a force, right? You like kind of lead by... Um, being the authority or authoritative. Um, and so those things involve like a more, I don't want to say it's like a feminine approach, but sort of, right? Like you're you're really, you know, caring about these people, um, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, for me, it was different or I always saw it through a lens that I really have a genuine interest in people. I want to know what makes them tick. You know, and when we started to do these work, this work at the mosque, 
the first time I went into this mosque, there was a, a preschool, there was a health clinic, there was uh, food for the homeless and for the hungry, and they were doing all of this service. And I, I was like, wow, this is not what I thought at all. I don't know what I thought was going on in there, but I didn't know that they were serving each and every aspect of the community selflessly. And uh, yes, there was people there that had gone to prison and come out. And they said, look, uh, we we don't make excuses for the crimes we've committed. We did our time, but now we're here. We've found God, we found Allah, and we're working to pave a different path for us, for our children, for our community. And, you know, my heart just connected to them in a way that I couldn't really articulate. That's beautiful. And that started my community work was, you know, we, we have a real, at that time, we had a real disconnect between the police and specifically the Islamic community. If you'd asked any police officer, or more importantly, any police leader, Hey, what do you know about Islam? They just said, ah, oh, you know, they, you know, 9-11. They hijack airplanes. Hijack, or, yeah. Nobody really knew, mm-hmm. right? And then, and I'll give you, this is this is a true story. I, I tell it all the time to young leaders because it was so simple. So this mosque, um, faced, when they came out from prayer, um, they would come outside to walk to the parking lot. And right across the street was this, was this vacant dirt lot. And there was an abandoned boat in an abandoned car. It was like it had been on fire and there was another car. And it just been there for years. Mm-hmm. And the one day the imam said, hey, we've been trying with the city and the county to get this moved and nobody will get rid of it for us. And it's just such an eyesore. And there's always just nefarious activities going on over here, dope deals and prostitution. And it's just awful. Right. right. It becomes like a landmark almost, yeah. like part of the community. And there's people that don't want that there. Yeah. Well, and it creates the um, broken windows, the thing of, if we allow this to be in our neighborhood, what else do we allow? Right. It's almost like if you have nice things, you take care of them more. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Correct. And so we, he said, can you help us? And we're like, yeah, no problem. So we went back to our, our community oriented policing team at the time. We said, Hey, can you, do you have any connects to the city? Can we do this? Like, yeah, no problem. We got it. Three days later, gone. And they couldn't believe it. They said, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you did this for us. Thank you so much. You know, what do you want? And we're like, what do we, nothing. Not nothing. This is this is what we do. Wow. We improve the quality of life. But what that did is it laid the foundation for trust. And that's not typically how you know people in like lower you know lower income communities and people who are like constantly getting in trouble by the authority. They don't look at police officers that way as helping them. They look at it as like you know you guys are targeting them and that thing. So when you're getting in and you're doing those those small improvements to their community. Like you said, I, I can totally see how that would build trust. Yeah, and then guess what happens, right? The natural byproduct is when something doesn't feel right in their neighborhood, right? If someone shows up that is making them uncomfortable, they call. They don't call 911 or 311, right? They call Sasha or somebody that they have a relationship with on my team, and they go, hey, I'm not saying it's something, but we got this guy, and you know he's, he's rattling off these you know, really extreme views and he's making us uncomfortable. We're like, got it. We're on our way. Because most people, especially culturally, if they come from a different country, there is not an inherent trust for the police, mm-hmm. right? If you come from anywhere else, the police will extort you for money. You know, they they beat you, you know, who knows what else goes That's on. That's right. It's like everyone who's been pulled over in Mexico. Exactly. It's like, you better have some cash on you. Exactly. And we don't operate obviously that way. So for us to build trust in those communities, it's even more challenging but once they trust you it's an amazing thing because then they call you and we get these 
these nuggets to make their neighborhood even safer and to help them, which then builds more trust, right? And it becomes a win-win-win thing. Because I feel like, it, too, like if people say that, like, oh, that's a bad part of town. There's not like, it's not like the entire community is bad, Correct. right? Like, so what that makes me think about is, you know, when I first bought my house um, and I live in a gated community, it was broken into. And the person that showed up, the police officer that showed up on the call, because of course my knee-jerk reaction is like, I'm leaving, I'm moving. Like I'd had the house for like less than a year and I'm like, that's it, I'm out of here. And she, I'll never forget, she said, I just responded to a call in Southern Highlands, which at the time, you know, that's, there's, you know, multi-million dollar homes. She's like, it just doesn't matter where you go. Right. There's bad people that will find their way into any community. So to look at it like that is like, yeah, those, the people who aren't doing bad things need to build trust with you guys so they can keep the bad. No one wants bad people in their communities. That's that is, what you just said is exactly the point. Nobody wants bad things to happen in their community. Right. Right. Nobody wants violence. Nobody wants the stray bullet that accidentally hits the child. Right. No community wants that. So it is incumbent upon us to blur the lines of those things that separate us and make us all one. Everybody deserves to have a voice and be heard and have their input matter. Yeah. And that's the work that we're doing. And you you brought up mentors. Can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of, you know, even somebody in your position to have a, a solid mentor and what and what that's done for you personally? Thank you for asking because the truth is I wouldn't be here today without those that have come before me. You know, I, I feel incredibly lucky and blessed to to be in this position. You know, I I've had a few gr uh, phenomenal ones. Um, my first female mentor and the person that kicked me in the butt to do this, her name was Kathy O'Connor, and she was a deputy chief for us. And she was such a pioneer because she did come through in a time where women were still wearing skirts mm -hmm. and where they treated them very differently. And there was two or three women on the whole agency. And she just went through such a challenging time to to break those glass ceilings, and she did and I was a, you know, I was a young police officer and she said, it's time for you to test for sergeant. I was like, no, I want to go to SWAT. That's what I thought it was going to do. And she said, oh, okay, but why would you do that when, you know, all of these other things were happening? Like I was, I had just married Tim and we were thinking about having a baby and all these things. And, and, and she really said, look, if you go to, if you test for sergeant, then you can go to SWAT as a sergeant. You'll be more impactful. You'll have, you know, less of an uphill swim, all these things. And Every time she's given me guidance, she was so right. And then so I did. I tested for sergeant and got promoted and went to the old west side that I was telling you about. And my first lieutenant, his name is Ted Snodgrass, and he'd been on 30 years, you know, and he was tall, gray-haired man, larger than life, and, and would come off rather... Um, like boisterous or... Yeah, boisterous, but it's cynical and kind of grumpy, but he... He'd been there, done that, seen it all, and he turned out to be, and to this day is, probably my greatest guiding force. I still call him now and go, okay, help me out with this one. And he does. He gives me great guidance. And now, because the universe always has a way of circling back around, both of his sons work for me. Oh, my God. And I feel so lucky that I get to then Full pay circle. it back. You know, yeah. Everything he did for me, now I get to look after them. And, you know, it's really neat. And then, uh, look, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that our now governor, Joe Lombardo, had done so much, has done so much. You know, he gave me my chance as a deputy chief and really always believed in me and, um, you know, taught me some great lessons about leadership and, and how to hold people accountable and how to do the right thing every time. Mm -hmm. And that's that's why he's our governor, because he does the right thing every time. 
And I also feel like good leaders ask for help. Every all You time. know, you don't, not one person has all the answers and even people who are at the top and these leadership roles need advice. Yes. So it's so important to have people like that in your corner that are kind of guiding you and molding you into, you know, like you said, so then you can do it for their kids. You it's know. true. Well, everybody has a different uh, lens that they see things through, they see problems through because of their experiences, you know, and then I have mentors outside of our organization, you know, Jan Jones, she's a dear friend of mine. And she is also, a, you know, like Kathy O'Connor, she's a pioneer. You know, Jan was our mayor during a time where it wasn't popular for female mayors and some of the things that she did and the choices she made, the programs she started. And she's a remarkable human. And she started an initiative at Caesars Palace called 30 by 30, which is to have 30% women in the workforce by 2030. Wow. So she really encouraged me to do that. So we started it at Metro and I got our sheriff to um, buy in on it. And so we're actively moving forward and, and working towards that goal. But there's just some phenomenal women in our community that have done so much for me to show me and inspire me. Missy Young, she's the CIO uh, over at Switch. She took Switch from a place where it was working out of a, a small room, much like this, to being a billion-dollar publicly traded company. Yeah, that building is huge. It's amazing. You can't miss it. They are honestly, they can't keep up building. They can't build fast enough to house the demand that they have. And and so much of that is to her credit. Why do you think it's important for women to be in leadership roles? Because we come with different strengths, right? Not better or worse. And I will never, I will never sit on a high horse and tell you that women are better because I don't believe that. I think that we show up with different strengths that complement the strengths that men bring. I think that we can, in police work, for instance, we have a different ability sometimes to talk to a victim. We can use a different tone of voice. We can relate to someone. We can help people. Maybe we show up with a different uh, array of patients or, right, just different ways to help people cope and get through situations. And a lot of times we can use de-escalation techniques, verbal de-escalation in ways that maybe a man would choose not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very well said. I, I, I love that answer. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on is I, I know that you've done some work with human trafficking, and I think there's some pretty sobering statistics on human trafficking. Can you, I mean, and I didn't realize that this stuff is happening here in Las Vegas. Like you hear human trafficking and you always just kind of feel like, oh, that's got to be happening in like other parts of the country that are like seedier. I don't know. So can you, can you talk about your work with human trafficking? So I have to be careful because I really... I'm very passionate about this, and I could talk to you about it for the next four hours. You know, human trafficking is something that, again, has been put under the spotlight, thankfully, uh, in the last 10 years. Because what happened is, you let's just take a movie like Pretty Woman, right? You watch Pretty Woman, and, you know, it's an iconic movie, probably for a lot of us growing up. But you look at Julia Roberts, you think, wow, she made a choice and she has this glamorous life now. And she meets this guy who treats her like a princess. And right, it's all roses and unicorns. The truth is, no young person wakes up and goes, you know, I think I want to get involved <laughs> in this, you know, this line of work and be beaten, emotionally scarred, tortured, have to have sex with people that completely repulse me and, you know, not feel good about myself day in and day out. Yeah, they like glamorized hooking. Right. There's nothing glamorous about it. Right. And, and I will tell you, it's funny. I just left a, a, a meeting with a woman, probably the strongest, one of the strongest, if not the strongest advocate in our community. Her name is Amy Ayub. 
She is, uh, has been fighting this battle for so many years and has partnered with phenomenal changemakers like Catherine Cortez Masto, who created her and Amy went forward and, and really pushed to create the first legislation on sex trafficking because we didn't really have laws to hold people accountable before that. But what you see is we, we as a community, we as a police department, had to change the way we viewed this crime and have a victim-centered approach. Right when I was a young detective and I worked in Vice, we would hold the girls accountable. What's I, Vice? Vice is what target is the section that targets sex trafficking or prostitution Got it. or pimps within the police department. Mm -hmm. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. And when I was an undercover detective, we would go out and try to pick up the the Johns, the guys, and most of the time uh, we would cite them and release them. We didn't usually arrest them. Sometimes we did, but most of the time we would cite and release them. But when we went after the girls, the majority of the time is we would arrest them and treat them like suspects, right? And then what happens is they go to jail, they get out, they go to jail, they get out, right? There's no help. We never close that loop. We never get them out of the life. Because if you think about what happens, right? Young girls, they're lured in today, social media, high school, the mall, you know, a casino. And it's not an immediate thing, right? The guy doesn't come up and go, hey, you want to be a prostitute for me? No, it's like, hey, girl, you look so good tonight, right? You're so beautiful, and, and can I take you out? Can I do this? So for a lot of young ladies, or men even, they, for the first time, feel seen, appreciated, loved, beautiful, right? And this slow boil happens where the trafficker or the pimp or whatever you want to refer to them as uh, gives them a sense of comfort, gives them a sense of security, gives them a sense of love, and then they turn it on, right? And then it becomes more intense. And it's like, if you love me, you'll do this for me. If you love me, you'll go out and make me $500, right? And then it escalates to, if you don't, I will beat your, right? If you don't, the violence starts. Wow, the psychology behind that is crazy. It's like gaslighting, manipulation, all of the all above. Of things, right? And right, not every case is the same. But what we have to understand as a community and in the world of policing is, we have to treat them as victims. We have to get them out. We have to give them support, services, education, you know, assistance, because it's not an easy life to just walk away from. There's a lot of violence associated. These pimps, right. these traffickers, they're so violent. They're carrying guns. They're, they're beating these girls sometimes to death. Wow. And here's the thing, right? I mean, let's be honest. It is much safer as a trafficker to run girls than it is dope. It is very challenging for us to prove in court sex trafficking cases. It's very challenging. They have not set it up to be victim friendly. Wow. So the traffickers, they know that. And the defense attorneys know how to drag a case out for six months, 18 months, two years. And then in order to get the charge on a lot of times, depending what we charge them on, the victim has to show up. And right now we're going to re-traumatize the victim, make them look at their trafficker, make them tell their story again. So it's That's really terrifying and people don't realize there's other you. people that are involved in that right. too. It's not just the, the trafficker. It's their, you know, if they leave, what then what are they safe? Right. Um, like I've, I've had to do that. I've had to go to a lineup and pick somebody out. Um, and actually Tim knows a story. I don't know if you know the story, but when I was in high school, someone like just shot into our car and uh, I had to go to a live lineup downtown and I was terrified because I don't know anything about this person. Right. Um, I don't know if he's got other people that are watching me go to my car. So, yeah, I, it is terrifying. I can't imagine. And but just imagine if you live in that life for six months or a year. And, you know, there's so many of these girls, the abuse is so intense. 
And it's, it's horrific when you see what happens on the other side. And so we are committed. We're committed to working our victim advocacy. We are committed to working on legislation. And we are committed to going after these pimps. Yeah, it sounds like the legislation needs to change. So let me just get this straight. If somebody has drugs on them, and you catch them, that's clearly an offense, right? That's against the law. And so- It depends what kind of drugs, how much is it? Right. right? The courts, they're not interested anymore. At least this group of, a good number, not all of them, but a good group of the judges and prosecutors that we have now, there is just not an appetite to put people in jail for drugs. There's just not. Mm-hmm. If you were to arrest somebody for that because it's an offense, is it harder to prove that somebody is trafficking uh, another human being. It seems to me now that I've been talking to you about this, that if you catch somebody with drugs, that's an offense, you know, if they have the certain amount. But if you catch somebody with another human proving that they're trying to sell that person's body, it's like seems it's counterintuitive. I know. Yeah. Right? But yeah, it's hard. I mean, to get the girl to testify against the person who Right. She, quote unquote, loves or has been taking care of her it's like Stockholm syndrome. It, it can be because you have to remember that, you know, a lot of these young folks have come from maybe a broken home. Maybe they come from, you know, a home where the, the, the world that the trafficker gives them is maybe better in some way. Maybe it's safer. Maybe in the beginning he got them nice things. You know, it's a it's is there's a lot of psychology involved that we might not understand on the surface. But we have to continue to understand that they are victims and nobody wants that life. They just don't. Right. Um, and we have to be careful, too, because there's there's TV shows like the brothel shows and everything that make it look so glamorous. And, oh, I want to be here. And, you know, I work here. And, you know, let's give rights rights to sex workers. But we have to be very careful how we approach that. We have to remember that at the end of the day, we need to support and help these folks in every way that we can. So this is like separate but related. And what you just said really like triggered this memory for me. Went to Thailand mm-hmm. and it was like yacht week, right? So everyone's just like hammered. You know, it's like the typical, I think I was like 24 years old or something. And, we, you know, everybody was in Bangkok and everyone knows about the, 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 sh- the ping pong shows that are there. And so that's all I'd heard that it was just a ping pong show and it was like supposed to be funny and whatever. And so a big group of, group of us take... Um, take like a little like taxi and and go there and I remember sitting there and I was so uncomfortable and everyone is just laughing like everyone the room is full you know we paid like peanuts to get in there and it's supposed to be you know it's kind of the way Americans see it is this like comedy from these other people who are doing like they're having sex on stage and they're but they're once I saw their facial expressions they were just blank um, and a lot of them were on drugs. They're literally performing for people in ways that they clearly don't want to be. Um, and so, you know, one of my friends that was sitting next to me was like, I'd like to leave now. And I'm like, same. And so that was, you know, my first experience with that. And to know that that happens here and everywhere, it, you know, a lot of places in the U.S. on a daily basis is um, really sobering. And the work that you guys are doing to help that is, you know, paramount. So um, and so what kind of programs exist for, for women that are caught or, you know, men that are caught not? Well, look, we are really blessed that we have a community filled with groups and advocates that are on board for this mission. And every day we have someone new that comes and wants to partner with us. And we feel, we feel incredibly um, fortunate to have that. And let's be honest, with now the addition of F1 and the Super Bowl, we have to be very um, cognizant 
of this collaborative effort, right? We can't just throw, um, throw it to the wind and hope for the best. We have a vetting process to put all these groups through to make sure that we're partnering with people that have, you know, legitimate means and corporations and organizations that want to do things for the right reasons and, and help the victims, right? And so we are proactively working to do a few things. The first one is educate. We have to raise a level of awareness in the community and we have to make sure that they understand what is trafficking, right? What does a potential victim look like? How do they report if they see something like that? And more importantly, I just met with my guys uh, last week to talk about if you are a victim, how do you call for help, right? If you've been brought here from Seattle or Dallas or somewhere else and you're in the stall at an airport, there's actually a hotline sometimes on I've the back of the door. I've seen it on the back of the door, yeah. But we need to make sure that then that hotline comes to us, right? Because there's a lot of times um, different groups that answer different hotline numbers. But ultimately, we want to give help and assistance to all of the victims, right? Every single victim matters. And so we're working now uh, diligently to put together that process and make sure that it's uh, foolproof. And make sure that when these large sporting events, like you said, uh, come to be, because it will bring demand, mm-hmm. right? right? We know that there's abundance of supply, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but the demand now is going to bring even more supply to our town. So how do we make sure we are prepared for that? And so that's what we're working tirelessly around the clock to do right now is get all of those processes in place. Is there like a different number? Like, let's say that someone sees this activity happening. Is there like a, di- a different number to call aside from 911 or how does that work? That's what we're working on, right? There is. And based on who we're partnering with um, for these sporting events and how we're going to do that. So you'll see it come out here in the next few weeks, all of the education material and how we do that. And it'll be nonstop um, awareness building up until F1. And do you do any work with the Cupcake Girls? We, it's so, so funny you mention that. Yeah, I know that they do a ton of work. They're really working hard in the community. Yeah, and their shop is like right across. They're building it. Oh, that's like, yeah. I didn't realize it's like right here. right across the street from here. So they've been just, here for a long time doing community work. Totally. So Joy Hoover started the Cupcake Girls, and essentially it started out where pe- they were going into strip clubs that's right. with cupcakes um, and helping these girls get out of these situations. Um, and there was usually like a number they could call like in the cupcakes, so it wasn't obvious. Right. Um, and so... I think what's going on with their bakery right now is in the front, it'll be a bakery that goes toward their nonprofit efforts. But in the back, there's a whole space where these women can go and, you know, seek reprieve and yes, and shelter. So Joy's an amazing human. She's yeah. a, a just positive ball of light. Totally. So this story, I don't know where this is going to go, but I do want to bring this up because I would be remiss if I didn't. Okay, so our, our mutual friend, Genghis, he's I, he's okay with with me talking about this. The other day, he tells me, he calls me, and he's like, "I saw I saw a UFO last night," uh, and you know, like, love Genghis. He's one of my best friends in town. I totally believe and trust. He's not some crazy person. He used to be in the military. He owns a gun range. Like he's a dialed in person. He teaches you know firearm safety training. Um. And so I'm like, well, tell me about this. So he's like, I'm, I'm going, he lives in a high rise and he's like, I'm going to get water. And I just see this thing hovering and like, you know, then it would like zip around and just fly at speeds that he couldn't make any sense of. So he calls me a few days later and says that he went to dinner with you and that he s- said, he mentioned that he'd seen a UFO and that you're kind of like silently smiling like this. 
<laughs> and that he could tell there was like other information that was that could have been out there. Um, so can you and, and and it's all over the news, by the way, like at this point, it had already been in the news. So I think that's probably why he was comfortable bringing it up to you. And so from what it said, there was a crash, right? A UFO crash uh, that these people witnessed on their property. Can you tell us information about that? Man, this is the million dollar topic. It's so funny because just the other day, my girlfriend that lives in Connecticut sent me the LA Times in which this was like the leading story. Well, because it's like we have, you know, Area 51 here and we even have, you know, this big tourist attraction that was built called Area 15 where there's, you know, so I think Vegas is, has always kind of been um, a hotspot similar to like Roswell. And now there's all these documentaries that are coming out about UFOs and everyone's the, the law that Biden has with his you know, whistleblowers where anyone can just come forward with any information. So I feel like all of those things combined right now are just making this a really hot topic. So I had to ask. I don't mind you asking. Look, at the end of the day, um, Sasha, the person, not Sasha, the assistant sheriff, but Sasha, the person really feels like we would be crazy to think we're alone in this universe. Yep. Totally. Right? I mean, how how self-centered to think we're the only existence in this enormous galaxy. That's so right. look, I have no proof uh, otherwise, but I will tell you that I, I, the person definitely think that there's other energies out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this particular night, what I can tell you is that yes, uh, our police officers did catch light ripping through the sky at what appears to be a very um, fast speed. It's You can't tell on the body-worn camera if it's a meteor if it's you know a, a suspected spaceship we don't we don't know we can't prove or disprove it either way you can just see and hear light a ball of light come streaming through and then impact somewhere mm-hmm. and then yes there are some citizens that call and say that something impacted in their backyard um, and I have to tell you that I, I felt for these folks because look we can't prove or disprove it was a hoax we did not find a spaceship um, but they were visibly shaken. Totally. And you can hear the 911 call that's been released. Yes. They sound terrified. And it's they almost do. like when they called, they knew that they were going to sound crazy. And so, yeah, you kind of have to have empathy for people like that, that are in this position where they're like, this is happening to me. I have to call, but I sure. know that this is wild. Right. And how do you articulate that? And I think they did a great job of of being calm and really trying to explain to the poor dispatcher who was trying to make sense of what they were saying, because there are things that are unexplainable in life. And, and I do think that something happened. I do think something impacted, may it be a meteor or anything else. I do think that that um, was a reality for them, but we did not find anything. When you guys responded to that call, there was no like impact mark or like burned grass or anything. It's hard to say what is what. Mm-hmm. You know, right. unfortunately, I didn't see it with my own eyeballs. So I'm always hesitant to say what it was and what it wasn't. But I will tell you that we definitely had some citizens that were traumatized. And so we went above and beyond to make sure that they understood that they were safe and we were there if they needed anything else. And that um, we were going to work collaboratively with anybody. We, we, we made notifications to anybody that might have been interested. And unfortunately, we weren't able to prove or disprove anything. Wow. And so what kinds of things were they saying? Can you share that? Um, they just described hearing a noise. 
and then they described um, probably what you saw in the media that they did see something mm-hmm. that was very tall and lean. And as you heard on the nine one one call, I I can't remember how tall he said it was over ten feet. Yeah, and that he you know was standing next to his uh, front loader. I think you call it. It was a big piece of construction equipment, and that's how he was able to tell how tall he was. You know, just the trauma of whatever you see, if it's an intruder or a wolf or a bear in your backyard, it's scary. And there was multiple witnesses, right? It wasn't one person that was like, this is what happened. There was a few people that said that they saw the exact same thing. That's correct. And all their stories checked out to be the same. That's correct. There was uh, there was two or three brothers, I believe, and a dad living at that house. It could have been a cousin, but there was a few grown adults. Was it a big piece of property? Yes. And did they say that it, like, crashed or, like, landed or crash landed? I don't want to misspeak. I don't remember exactly what word to use, but he said it definitely hit the ground near them. Oh, my God. That's wild. It was it was wild. Do you find that those things happen often in Las Vegas? Look, I mean, th- this is probably, in my 25, almost 25 years, this is probably the most specific incident that we've ever had. Of somebody that had clear, you know, that was sane, that was not high, not on drugs. Like he was very, they're all within their right mind. Um, very, very intelligent folks that gave this account. Also supported by the body-worn camera video that we have. But was it a meteor? There are people that say it was a meteor that hit and struck. So I don't know. So I wish I did. A, there was a police officer wearing a body-worn camera that caught something on it. All it caught was the light that I was telling you about. He was on an unrelated call down down the, a couple blocks away, and it just caught the light going through the sky. Yeah. I feel like, for, too, for other people who have had spooky experiences like that, hearing about things like that make you feel, like, comforted in a way because it makes you feel less crazy if you've seen something like that. And I feel like that's kind of how our friend Genghis was like looking at it. Like he felt validated and not crazy. Sure. You know what I, I mean? think there's things that happen every day that we can't explain or that we don't know about. So now that you are in this position where you're, you're at the top of your game, you've done a lot. You've been in, you've been in the forest for 25 years. What's next for you? Cause I feel like you're so good at mentoring and it seems like you're very well-spoken so is there anything coming up that could be like, you know, can we see you in a future TED Talk maybe? That is bucket list for me right there. You know, I I love teaching. I love building. I feel like my superpower is connecting people that need to meet and removing the lines that might have previously separated them or prevented them from being together. And building programs that support that, make support community, support um the prevention of, and really my specialty has been working in the prevention of preventing violent extremism, how to help the folks that have gotten pulled in or radicalized, how to really help support their efforts to get out. And and I like the prevention space because I think there's so much work that can be done, especially for the youth, to divert them. Right, We all come to a fork in the road many times in our life, right, where we can either zig or zag. I'll give you a great example. Let's take five, what would otherwise be considered different entities. Let's say police, fire, military, gangs, like the Bloods and the Crips, Mm -hmm. and terrorists, okay? Five uniquely different groups of people. But each one of them within that space has community. Would you agree? Yeah. Okay. So let's say 
arguably, that the one thing we all have in common is that we're pulling from the same pool of candidates. So as a police department, if we go recruit, we go to high schools or colleges or, you know, places where there's people that are looking to join a community. Right. And I would argue that the fire department does that, the military, right? The three of us really do compete for the same pool. But listen, somebody that joins a gang also comes to that fork in the road and goes, man, I want to belong. I want to belong. I want to be a part of a community because I'm lacking that. So how do I get into a space? And it just so happens that the person they meet or their cousin or their brother or their dad or whoever it is, is already a part of the gang community and pulls them in. So now they have that. They have the I am. And the same is true for, and I use the word terrorist very loosely, but uh, that's why over the last two decades when we were in war, the enemy was so good online. They would make these great YouTube videos of, you know, come overseas, come train with us. You know, you'll be, it's this glamorous lifestyle. You can carry an AK-47 and be part of us, train with us, right? I want to be part of us. And so what we have to do is figure out how do we divert and get them to come to the policing, fire, military side rather than the gang, human trafficking, terrorist side. Right. Because if you don't know better, you can't do better. Absolutely. So you're more of like a preventative rather than responding to something after it's already happened and trying to pull somebody out. You're kind of trying to get on the front end of it, right? I, I like that space. I, I think that there's so much work we can do, but I've spent a ton of time working in the space of how do we get them out? How do we de-radicalize them? How do we get them out of a gang? How do we support that effort? Right? How do we get them out of being trafficked? ton of work to be done there. And then the other part that doesn't get as much attention, but it should, that we, um, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, spend a lot of time working in, is in uh, reform and prevention once they're incarcerated. There's so much phenomenal outreach and support and efforts that are done within the jail and prison systems. And then once they get out, how do we give them the tools, understanding, support, and mentorship, really, to use your word, to make sure that they choose better, do better, and have a better community so that they can get jobs. And because look, it, it's, it's arrogant to say, oh, okay, so this, this person gets booked into jail, uh, a father with two children, and he's a drug addict, and you know he committed an armed robbery. He's part of a gang, right? Spends, let's say, two years in jail. When he gets out of jail, he's still a father of two children, He's still a part of that gang community, right? Those are still his friends and his family. And he gets out and he then gets back into the life and we're surprised. Why are we surprised? We didn't do anything to support him, right? Did we teach him parenting skills? Did we teach him job skills, interview skills? Did we give him a new sense of mentorship and connection with a different community? No, we didn't. So that's what the space that we're working in. We work with an amazing group called Hope for Prisoners that does that supportive mentorship and we partner with them and we go, hey, look, I realize and I recognize that the police took away your freedom, but I want to offer you an opportunity to see us through a different lens because now we're here to support you on this journey. That's so interesting because the other day I was just reading that um, one of the members of the cult, the Charles Manson yes. murders, was released and she's yes. like in her 70s. Yes. And I was just thinking, like, I just had this moment where I was like, what is she going to do? She's been in there since she was like, 17 yes and so when you get out and you're that old because it the, the article specifically stated that she has to learn basic skills like how to drive a car right um and and all of these things that i'm just thinking man it almost seems like prison is like a safe haven 
It is after especially that long. I'd want to go back in. It's right. like, what do you, who do you, who do you know? Like you said, you don't have a community. You don't know anybody that's on the other side. You've been there for such a long time. So that's really interesting. It's like these things that people don't consider. And there's other organizations that you, you guys are like connecting with to make a difference. And that's important. There's some real change makers in our community. That's why people say, oh, Las Vegas, it's so transient. It's so this. And I disagree. Yes, we have 44 million visitors a year. Lucky us. But within our community, we have people that are doing some remarkable work every day in each one of these spaces, the before, the during, and the after. And there's so much opportunity for us to make this the safest community in America. There really is. And it sounds like you're spearheading a lot of those efforts yourself. So, I mean, I, I appreciate the work that you do. And I feel like this conversation has been so interesting and and hopefully insightful for anyone that's listening and just, you know, has a, a linear view of the police force. Like there's so much more to what you guys do. And especially as a woman in a leadership role, I feel like that kind of feminine energy is translating for the good across the department. So that's amazing to hear. I appreciate you saying that, you know, we're, we are very um, diverse in our community and we're working very hard to make sure the police department represents the community that we serve. And there is some incredible leaders coming up. I think that in the next 10 years, this community is going to be so blessed with the leadership coming up. And, and it's because of these young, innovative, next generation thinkers that it's going to take us to the next level. And like what we're doing with technology, we didn't even talk about that. The technology that let's is talk, on the forefront. Let's talk about it. Do you have a few minutes to talk about it? Yeah. yeah. So it's exciting. Like, you know, we are going to be safer as a police department and as a community because of, you know, everything from drones to um, license plates readers to artificial intelligence, because uh, the way we're going to be able to respond, we have shot spotter technology, the way we can respond to gunshot detection. You know, right now we send cops, you know, gunshots go off, it sets off the detector, we go. Incredible, right? We're solving more crimes, we're helping more people. But what's coming is what about when we can send a drone, right? So if there's still gunfire going, we don't put the cops in that line of fire that can potentially get injured right away, but the drone can go. That's so smart. I mean, it's not here yet, but it's coming, mm -hmm. right? All of these things. Can we, we send robots now into houses? We send drones. Wow. On an active, you know, like active shooting or active barricade or something. Sure. Because we used to just send our poor SWAT team through the door. Right. But now we slow the momentum. We no longer just go with force first. We really do. We have slowed down because we know it's safer for us in the community. So we take it slow. We take it by the numbers. We use human skills. We de-escalate. And it's it's proven to be much, much safer and, and really to have a more positive resolution on the other side. We're saving more lives. And I think the community should really get excited about the, the technology that's coming. And we are using it in a very safe, responsible way that doesn't violate civil rights or civil liberties. We partner with the ACLU. We partner with the NAACP. We partner with the federal you know, guidelines, everybody that tells us. We bring senators and, 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 and congresspeople and city, county elected officials in to see the technology and to get their input and to say, hey, what do we need in order to make sure that the public feels good about this and that you feel good, the lawmakers. So we really do. We don't do this with blinders on. We do it, take it in consideration, everybody, right? And unfortunately, we can't solve a crime in 30 minutes, like CSI says. We try, <laughs> but we're getting to a point where we're getting faster, we're getting better. And, and more importantly, 
we're we're taking the right people into custody. Because, right, 30 years ago, think of all the people, the stories you would hear of wrongfully convicted. Or, right. That was like before there was like DNA testing correct. and those things. Yeah. And now we have the ability to get it right the first time. So that's that's always our goal. We never want to take the wrong person, right? We want to we want to make sure that justice is served fairly, adequately, you know, without any um, prejudice. And that's really important to this, the police department. It's so important to me. You know, I, I think that I know what it's like to have been accused or to watch somebody be accused of something that wasn't right. And so we have to fight for justice for everybody every day. Right. And, and blur the lines that, that separate us. I think that that is the key to a healthy, happy community. Well, I am so glad that you came on to talk about this. Like I said, I feel like most people have a very linear view of police. Um, and, and there's so many intricacies and things that are involved and, and people in leadership roles like you that are really helping people understand that the police are here to make our environment, our community safer. So Thank you. Um, tell everybody where they can find you. Well, I'm on LinkedIn, Sasha Larkin, and I'm not a big social media buff. Um, I, I've always chosen to just kind of try to keep it to a minimal but once I retire, maybe I'll become, you can teach me how to do all the social social media. We're definitely going to find a TED Talk for you because this has been such an insightful conversation. I really appreciate it. So thank, thank you for having me. Thank you for the opportunity. And listen, for our Las Vegas residents, keep, keep being amazing and keep finding ways to get involved because that's what's going to make our community safer every day. Love it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you.